everyone. It's Justine Hollister uh, back with our Screen Thoughts podcast, and we hope to be doing them weekly. And I'm so excited to welcome Lalu to our podcast this week. So, Lalu, say hello. Hey, Hollister. Thank you. You know, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Well, it's funny because Lala's been listening when, when O'Toole and I used to do it. She listened all the time and every week sent some sort of missive about it or a challenge to it or her point of view or something, and it was great. And then when O'Toole, you know, had to pull away, I really haven't been consistently doing them. I miss being yang with her. But Lalu has been posting on our social media, our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and so she's been active in Screen Thoughts for the last 18 months or so, and now we're going to try a podcast together, so it's going to be really fun. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Now, just to start with a little thing from the news, okay, I don't know I don't know if you heard about this, but did you see the uh, movie Harriet that came out? Yes, I did. Okay. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second, but get this. So in this interview between Focus Features and Gregory Allen Howard, who was the writer and producer of the new Tubman biopic Harriet, Howard said that, <laughs> I can't believe this, it was 1994, and he fell in love with the Harriet Project at Disney then. Okay, so we're talking about 25 years ago, Okay. And the climate in Hollywood, he was saying, however, you know, was a lot different back then. And he said he was told by a studio head that said, this script is fantastic. Let's get Julia Roberts to play Harriet Tubman. (laughs) I saw that. I saw that. And I thought about posting that on Screen Thoughts. But, you know, I just didn't know what to say about it because it was so absurd that I thought, what when I'm going to write in this post? Maybe I'll just keep this one. Well, what, what made me laugh, are you challenged the person? And he said, when someone pointed out that Roberts couldn't be Harriet, Howard continued, the executive responded, oh, that was a really long time ago. No one's going to know the difference. <laughs> 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 All right. So what happened is, so this, this, this interview goes up, and Twitter goes wild with women going, you know, you can't be serious. So I wanted to read one of the tweets by, I think her name is Elu, it's E-L-U, and her name is Elu Thankful, and her handle on Twitter is Strangeland underscore else, E-L-F, and you've got to listen to her. But here's what she tweeted. She said, imagine suggesting Julia Roberts play Harriet Tubman when Scarlett Johansson exists. <laughs> Isn't that great? I loved it. I loved it. Oh, you know, out of, out of the mouths of women is all I can say about that. But I saw Harriet, and I didn't really want to review it because it's very long and, you know, sort of predictable, and we all know the story a little bit, but we have to, you have to put it out there. I mean, the acting is tremendous, and the story can never really be appreciated enough. Yeah, and, you know, I I didn't grow up in this country. I'm not American, so I didn't know as much about the story as you probably did. I had uh-huh. an idea. Oh, yeah, interesting, yeah. Was. So, and, and I... I'm fascinated by this idea of the Underground Railroad, so I was so happy to learn more about it. And the movie, I, I really enjoyed it. I like it a lot. Well, you couldn't help but see it now. And when, you know, I'm somebody who believes our borders should be more open, and I couldn't help but think, God, wouldn't it be great to get an un- you know, a railroad going, you know, through Mexico? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, that could be an alternative. <laughs> I know. I know, exactly. 
But the other thing that I had to laugh is, I, you know, I didn't know that Harriet Tubman, when she, she left by herself and she was up north for a year and she went back, the original reason she went back was to get her husband, who she'd left behind. She thought it was too dangerous for him. He was a free man to come with her. And yeah, when she first left the South. Yeah, yeah. And then she goes back. And a year later, and he's already remarried him having a child. Like, I just thought men. Like, really? Like, <laughs> you know, he didn't know she was dead. You know, <laughs> no offense. but And that's what just made her, you know, solidly behind. I've got to get people out. And, you know, she she brought up hundreds of people. You know, her, her trajectory and her story is, is truly amazing. So. Yeah, and I, I, I really love that they didn't want her to go back. And she said... What you're talking about, I am going back and getting more people out. I, I can do that. Why not? So, yeah, I really loved the movie. Yeah, I did too. And then the other thing that I saw this week that I just want to talk about briefly is AMC put out a three-night documentary on the Preppy murder. Now, you wouldn't know about this, Lalu, because this took place in New York City in 1986. And you woke up one morning and all of a sudden this white, girl who was 19 who was headed to college the next week who lived on the Upper East Side. Actually, she lived lived downtown, but at the time, I remember thinking she lived on the Upper East Side where I lived. She was found under a tree right behind the Metropolitan Museum in Central Park, and she'd been murdered. And then it turned out within a day, um, this guy, Robert Chambers, was arrested, and he was better looking than John Kennedy Jr. Her name was Jennifer Levin. And this three-night documentary by AMC, which is also was, was shown and put out by Sundance, it, it's amazing. It, I, I, you know, I followed the whole thing very carefully in 80, you know, 1986 to 89, and I didn't realize how they had, because he was white and he'd gone to prep school on the Upper East Side and he was very, very good-looking, he became the, they called him the preppy murderer, but he said that she died accidentally in, when they were having rough sex. And they made her out to be, you know, a whore. Basically, there's no other way to describe it. Okay, so there's a great article in the Atlantic magazine. Um, Sophie Gilbert wrote it, and I'm just going to quote a couple things here because I think it really is worth going back and looking at. So the fascination with Chambers and, to a lesser extent, Levin, was disproportionate. Here was a young man who looked like a Hollywood Adonis, the news anchor Rosanna Scotto tells the camera, giddily. Women who knew Chambers as teenagers described how every girl in school had a crush on him, likening him to a kind of York-filled Pied Piper with girls trailing in his wake. Um, maybe context helps, but looking at all the old photos now, there's something disturbing about the callousness of his cold, supercilious look in his eyes. He was captured for the cover of New York Magazine. New York Magazine did this big piece on him. And in a photo shoot brokered by his lawyer to buttress his defense, Chambers' features are blank. His arms are in a self-sufficient position. He's on the cover, dressed up in a blazer and tie, and he looks fabulous. But And Levin, by contrast, was all in these pictures with her arms around people, and she's smiling, and she's embracing her friends. But here's the bottom line. So they basically had great empathy for him. So Levin was too easily twisted by Chambers' lawyer, Jack Littman, into a sex-crazed harridan 
who had forced Chambers to kill her in self-defense. Littman reportedly leaked stories to the press about Levin's sexual partners and spun a particularly ludicrous yarn about a date book she kept uh, actually being a sex diary, which it turned out the judge had to make a statement that there was no sex in it. The judge read it and made that statement. But by then, the media had already dubbed her that. And everybody you met said, well, you know, she, it, it wasn't, it was almost as if she deserved it. So the media coverage preceding the trial was so heavily skewed in favor of the defendant that when pictures of Levin's uh, neck, which w- was brutally, I mean, he strangled her million, I was just gross, were finally revealed in court. They shocked everyone present. So the prosecutor was Linda, Linda Fairstein, who you all re- may remember from the, the big Netflix piece that was done on the, the people that Linda Fairstein unfairly, the Central Park rape and uh, beaten up thing. She mistakenly put people in jail and she knew they shouldn't, didn't belong there. But but anyway, so she went in and they had this trial and it looked, looked like the jury was not going to be able to come to a verdict so they ended up putting him in jail for five to ten years he agreed to five to fifteen years he ended up serving 15 because he was so bad in jail and he's back in jail because he ended up selling drugs when he got out but bottom line is back then now keep in mind we're talking about 1986 which is just a couple years before anita hill who was also totally mischaracterized by the press and at that time the press was really all men so if you think about it i mean have we come a long way i sure hope so but looking at this documentary, having gone through it in the 80s and living in that area, I must tell you, it's a must-watch, and it's a must-watch because the press really does control a point of view so, so readily. And at this point in time, when everybody is solidly behind their own press people, so if you're, you know, if you're a Trump person, you're, you know, committed to Fox, and if you're not, you're an MSNBC or CNN, and it's just a moment in time to recognize that you can't get everything on TV, you know? Yeah, that that looks fascinating. I should take a look at that. Yeah, it's AMC. I don't know if they're replaying it, or I don't know what where else you can find it, but, but take a look if you haven't. It's just, it's just stellar, truly stellar. And then we are going to talk about unbelievable. This one's been out, I think, for almost too much, but let's so it's based on the true story of Marie, a teenager who was charged with lying about having been raped, and then the two female detectives who follow the path to the truth. So, But I have to start, before we get into it, and I've been talking already too much, but let me just start anyway with, I've got to start off with a comparison to Silence of the Lambs, okay? Silence of the Lambs came out 25 years ago, and I thought it was one of the most important films I'd ever seen, because for the first time, I saw a woman who was sitting in a man's world, and she fixed everything. And Jodie Foster, who plays the FBI agent that actually breaks the case with Hannibal Lecter and everything else, she fought to get that role. And you people have heard me, if you follow Screen Thoughts, you know I've spoken about it many times. She fought to get that role because she said that she wanted it because the one woman in the entire movie is the one who saves all women from all different kinds of men. And some of the men, she said, weren't even bad. You know, the head of the FBI department, who she sort of corrects on how he behaves a number of times, is a good guy. I mean, he's on the side of good, but he still doesn't know how to handle women. So that was the first time I saw a mirror of myself 
in a movie of something of such great import. So, I mean, you've heard me talk about it. You Did you see Silence of the Lambs? Did you see the enormity of that? Yes, definitely. I remember seeing in the movie theater, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I know, of all time. So when I saw Unbelievable, I started to cry, and I watched it twice. I wanted to watch it a third time before I reviewed it. I started to cry because I realized that in 25 years, every single character in Unbelievable, they're all women. The detectives are women. The people supporting her are women. The foster women who fuck up are women. You know, it's just unbelievably filled with women characters that are developed so well that show the enormity of what we can do when we set out and try. And even when we try, okay. No, and it's based on a true story. So all those women existed. It's not a show that decided to make a whole story around women. That I mean, most of that is true. I was impressed about how close to the real uh, case they are. Well, unbelievable. It debuted on Netflix, and it's based on a true story reported in 2015 by ProPublica and Marshall Project. It basically folds two narratives into eight episodes. And the first narrative is about what happens when people investigating a rape do everything wrong. Not the procedural elements, although they mess up on those too, but the human elements. The part where a detective questions an 18-year-old woman who's just survived the worst experience of her life, a woman he's supposed to help, and he fails her. You know, he re-victimizes her by making her go over the story of her attack again and again and again. A nurse pokes and prods her without asking whether she needs a break. The foster mother raising her has suspicions that she's lying and puts that suspicion into the detective's mind. No one pays attention to her emotional state or how it might be limiting her ability to efficiently convey what happened to her. And then the second, you know, parallel conversation is when you do everything in an investigation right. And it's relying on the acumen of these two women detectives who join together to solve the series of rapes by one serial rapist. And the one denominator between the two structures is that the detectives in the first scenario are men and in the second both are women. Well, you know, I was I was thinking about that and I also loved the show. I binge watched it and I'm not a binge watcher, but I just couldn't stop watching. So I watched in two days. I was done with the show. It's very rare. But I was trying to figure out what was going on because one of the good things about the show is that the male policemen, they're not bad people. It's not just like obviously they're sexist and they're uh, not going to believe her. They seem to be trying to do the right thing. And at least one of them, when he figures out that she was really raped, he's sincerely sorry about everything that he did and what she, what he put her through. I, I believed him, him being sorry about that. So why did that go so differently from when the women it started to investigate another case that it will connect with Maurice. And I think what was really different was empathy. So the guys couldn't have empathy with her, maybe because rape is considered a more, is seen as a, uh, or in, I think in fact is a crime that affects more women. It's not only women who are victims, but it's mostly women. And I think they couldn't put themselves in her place. Yeah. And that's really what makes a difference. And that's what guides the two police women 
even though they react very differently to that empathy, Karen Duvall with Merritt Weaver's character, she reacts with a lot of compassion. And Tony Collette's character reacts with some rage and uh, she really gets mad and that's what drives her. But it comes from empathy and that's what lacks in the male policeman. Well, the male, the male policeman that you mentioned, not only is he sorry, uh, the thing that really struck me was more than being sorry is he started to question whether he was a good cop. You know, that, that the way he handled it, when he saw how he handled it and how he really felt he was handling it the right way, that he started to question whether he was good at his job. And I think we can't make change in this country in terms of gender issues until people start to question their own behavior. And I loved seeing him question it because you rarely see that in any series. And so, you know, brilliantly done, brilliantly done in terms of that. But the second thing is I think the women also, the two women detectives, they were diligent. They were not lazy. He was a little lazy. They were relentless. Yeah, they They were were relentless. So committed. They were driven by their own anger and desire to make sure this man could never do it again. You know, he didn't have that. You know, he was not saying, this can never happen again. How did this happen on my watch? They were committed in a way that took from took away from their home life, took away from their personal selves. You know, they were in it to win it, and he was not. And I can't help but wonder if that's not even a gender issue. You know, it was so well put together, but when we look at these characters, we've got to talk about them individually. First of all, Tony Collette plays Grace Rasmussen, and Merritt Weaver plays Karen Duvall, and they're the two women detectives. God, what incredible characters, didn't you think? Yeah, and they are so, so different, because Tony Collette, her character, there's so much outrage there, and she's such a lone wolf. She just wants to go and figure out and do it's even how we see her the first time i don't know if you remember her first scene but she's in a car listening to some rock music and then she goes after a guy that she's basically stalking because she thinks he may be uh the rapist she's looking for uh and merrick weaver on the other hand she's so quiet and but you can see there's so much going on behind that so she's, well, she's always driven, you know, there's a great yin-yang between them because she's a, yeah. a devout God, she's a God girl, as I like to call them. And but I think her, her main trait is compassion, and she's so focused on the fact that it's all about the victims, that she tries to contain all her rage. But you can see there is so much going on behind that. And there is so much compassion. It's really, it's amazing. And they work perfectly together. Yeah, I thought the combination of the two of them was truly amazing. Tony Collette is best known probably for the United States of Terror, where she plays somebody who has multiple personality disorder. And I think she won an Emmy for it, or she was at least up for an Emmy for it. But the first time I saw her and fell madly in love with her was the movie In Her Shoes. Did you catch that movie? Uh, I'm not sure I saw that. I know what it is, but I don't think I saw Yeah, that. Cameron Diaz plays her younger sister, and she plays sort of the plain Jane girl, and she's brilliant in it, and she shows an incredible depth. But in it, funnily enough, in, in her shoes, she's somebody without any confidence until the very end. 
and in Unbelievable, she is sort of the top of the two of them. She's the really confident one who's who's done amazing things and is actually, in some ways, Merritt Weaver's in awe of her. And so she's sort of leading the team of two, and she can go back and forth between those two roles brilliantly, and, and she's really strong. So when I saw Merritt Weaver in Unbelievable, I had never seen her before, but I can't take my eyes off her. When the two of them are on the screen, when Tony Collette's on the screen and Merritt Weaver, my eyes are on Merritt Weaver. I couldn't take my eyes off of her. Um, but she was in Birdman, and then I recently saw her at the Hampton Film Festival. She's in Marriage Story, and she plays a sister in Marriage Story, and she's very good. This woman is going to have a huge, huge career on the screen. And she also plays real women. She's not, you know, it's not about her beauty and how the camera quote loves her. It's about her ability to convey a character without using words, you know. So whoever writes for her can count on her to bring bring it, you know, to the thing. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I saw her in Married Story too. I just saw it this past weekend. And yeah. she has a very small role. She doesn't appear much on screen, but when she's on screen, especially her first scene, she completely still I know, right? It's amazing. It's amazing. Now, Aylin Waldman and Susan Grant both were writers on this script, and I heard an interview with them. It was really interesting. There's one scene, and I'm not sure which episode, it's toward the end, where the two women are in a car, and the scene was written, the two women are in a car, and the scene was written, and it turned out that when they read the scene, it was seven minutes long. And not only that, there's no action. They're sitting in the dark in a car. They're watching, observing someone's house. And so the director was like, we can't, it's too long. You know, we can't have a seven-minute scene where there's nobody moving and all it is is a conversation back and forth. And the writer was like, just shoot it and you can decide what you want to take out of it, but I, I, there's nothing I want to take out of it. So they shot it. They shot it in one take. It's one of the finest scenes in it. Don't you agree? Oh, definitely. And, you know, I had already seen the show twice, too, and you mentioned that scene. And it took me a while to figure out what it was because I, I didn't remember a, a scene that was that long because it doesn't feel long. Exactly. And I went it, back and I watched it, it again because you mentioned that. So I can tell it's on episode six because I, I watched that the other day again. And, you know, I was counting, and they go from subject to subject, and it's like the transitions are so smooth, but I counted, and I counted 11 different subjects in that scene. Oh, my but God. But you don't yeah. feel that, and you don't feel the seven minutes. I really, when you mentioned it was that long, I couldn't believe, because after watching the show twice, I hadn't noticed how long it was. It, it doesn't feel long. It's just Well, it's, it's funny, scene. because a Sorkin walk-and-talk scene and he always had the walk and talk scenes because he had a lot of dialogue going back and forth, and he felt there needed to be action. But one of the longest scenes in a Sorkin TV series is four minutes. So you're talking about they're not moving, and it's seven minutes, and you're not once looking anywhere else or checking your phone or anything. It's riveting, riveting. So that speaks to the direction of it. It speaks to the writing of it, but mostly it speaks to the acting, if you ask me. Definitely. So I, Especially yeah. if they shot only once, and it's, it's the perfect scene. Right, now I also have to bring up, there's a therapist, a wonderful therapist who's working with Marie, you know, Caitlin Deaver, who plays Marie. And the therapist, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but she was in Silence, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs again? I know, she yeah. was. She was so, 
woman who was in the basement of the... Um, in the well, right? Yes, she was the one, you know, like it puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. She was that person, and now here she is, you know, all, you know, 25 years later on a film that I think is the evolution of Silence of the Lambs, and she's playing an incredible therapist. And the therapist seems, the writing of it is so poignant, and that therapist, as a therapist, has developed really well. And talk about empathy. Her ability to empathize without too much sympathy, because Marie would not have been able to handle sympathy. She wouldn't have been able to. And it was, I just thought it was stellar. I thought it was riveting, and I thought the silence in it was riveting. I just thought it was really, really well done. Which is also a very long scene, but it doesn't feel long. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a favorite quote? You know, I have a favorite dialogue. It's a very short dialogue. I don't know if you remember this scene, but it's when the two police women are first going to the FBI. They have recently discovered that they are probably looking for the same rapist, and maybe it's a guy who who knows how the police works, and maybe he's raping in different districts. And so they go to the FBI to try to get some help, and they're talking to the FBI agent, and he tells them that uh, they can look in the system, but, you know, detectives tend to be more motivated to record information in murder cases than in uh, rape cases. And so Tony Collette's character says, don't look like you just robbed us of our innocence. We've been down this block before, and Merritt Weaver replies, we live on this block. And it's a great dialogue, especially because it's clear they are not going to let that stop them. They will solve that crime and find that rapist regardless. They're just trying to get as many resources as they want, as they need, but that will not stop them. So it's just a, a great scene, a great dialogue. Well, the other pressure that they had, which I felt it was palpable, was they were running against time before it happened again. Like, they really didn't want it to happen again. So I thought, all right, so to mine, there's t- I have two. And I one that sort of slapped me across the face. And basically, Maria's lawyer is talking to her in one of the scenes. And he says to her, this is the young girl who's been raped. And he says, you know, no one ever accuses a robbery victim of lying. Or someone who said he was carjacked. It doesn't happen. It yeah, I remember that scene. I, it had never occurred to me that no one accused somebody who's been robbed of lying. It never occurred to me, but he's right, you know. And then the second one, at the end, and again, these are plot spoilers. You can't, you know, you, but they're, they're not going to change you wanting to watch it. So Marie's talking to the detective, and she goes to really sort of say to him, you know, you never apologized to me for messing it all up. And she says to him, Next time, do better. It's such a, it's four words. Next time, do better. And all I could think of is, you know how everybody says you're supposed to forgive and forgiveness helps you, and I never really understood that concept. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, I want to understand it because forgiveness is a great thing. But next time, do better, and she can walk away. And I just thought it was, it was life-changing, you know. It's like a burden lifted, but... What a simple way to do it. She wasn't saying, you owe me or, you know, spend the rest of your life in penance. She just said, next time, do better. And you know what? I felt like she was letting him off the hook enough that he was going to be able to continue to be a good cop. He was just going to be better at it. 
I yeah, think it was, he was really going to try to be better. Yep. He felt really bad. Well, he's worse than, bigger than feeling bad. He definitely was not not sure he should he had the right to be in the position he was in, and I think that gave him the right to make the mistake and then move on. And I thought it was a poignant moment. And then the other thing is, we're going to play here a clip that is Marie's talking to her lawyer, and he says to her. And the reason I want to play this clip is I think it really, one of the things that's happening in television today is that women are beginning to show their own empowerment. And one of the reasons we can do that now is we're writing, directing, and acting in these series. And we're going to go through a couple of those in a minute. But this clip is, he says to her, why do you want to sue this city? Why do you want to do this? And she then explains why. And at the end, you know, she says she wants to expect more, basically, and, and listen to what he says back to her. So we're going to play that clip down. How do you feel about that? Well, at first, I was like, $500. Cool. But then I got to thinking that there were other things that I lost because of this. Like, my job, my housing, three counselors, plus, you know, friendships. And I know it's like, hey, $500 that you didn't have yesterday, but my whole life I've just been like, take what you get and just be happy that it's not worse. But something about this made me feel like maybe that's not good enough this time. You know what happens when you decide you're not going to just take what you get anymore what you get more okay didn't you think that clip was such an important clip for women everywhere like why should we lower our expectations rather than raise them yeah that's a great scene and that's also marie is a different person there she really uh changed from the first episode which very much around her in fact she, the detectives, the women, they don't appear at all in the first episode, which is the hardest one to watch, right? And, yeah, yeah. But she's a completely different person, and she changes and gets to, to that point. There is definitely definitely some growth there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I do have to, you know, there are a couple of things that are challenging. One of the problems is there were a lot of things to wrap up. There were three detectives to wrap up, a number of rape victims, and we should talk about those rape victims and how they were portrayed as different types of people. Really interesting. Um, Each one had a different uh, response to what happened to them. You know, one became very fearful, one became strident. You know, it showed all the different responses that, that the therapists are now saying are totally normal, but they're not the same. People do not respond the same to rape. And each of the victims that they bring into this, and there are five altogether, have a different response to what happened to them. And I think it shows us and teaches us that you can't judge someone's response as appropriate or not because there is no such thing, you know. Don't you think that's one of the Yeah, and it's interesting because that's the reason why one of her foster moms starts to doubt because she thinks the reaction is not expected. And it's interesting because there is a dialogue between the two. There, there are two foster moms that come up in the show and they're talking. And in the beginning, they're both 
a little unsure of what happened, but then the other one says, what if she's just reacting differently because she's a different person? Yeah. And and I think that's what the, the show shows, that people just react differently. It doesn't mean they're lying. Right, exactly. But the other thing is, this is an eight-episode series, so they should have been able to wrap up every character. And the two they didn't wrap up are the two foster mothers, who were the only two women who I didn't forgive. And, you know, the way they handled their, their foster child, Marie, I, I had trouble with both of them. And that, but that, that's the only, those are the ones that were not wrapped up. We never knew what happened to them in the end. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah. But I didn't really miss it. <laughs> you know what? I sort of wanted to know. And I sort of wanted to know that they came forward in some way. There were so many ways they could have brought them into those last two episodes to say, oh, my God, you know, I'm so sorry or something, you know, that would have made it worthwhile. But but overall, there was a lot of subplots going on. And you never felt like you were overburdened with information for about all of them. And so I think it's pretty incredible. And it's also interesting because the stories run parallel to each other, Marie's story and the female detective stories, but they never meet, right? They never meet. You don't really notice that, but if you think they only, well, she talks to Karen Duvall's Merit Weaver's character on the very last episode, on the phone, and that's Yeah, but it. they know they never meet. They never meet. Nope. Yeah, nope. but the story, it, it feels very interconnected. And I saw an interview with uh, Caitlin Giver, and she says that they basically didn't meet at all, really, while shooting the, the show. She would maybe see them in the studio once in a while, but the, she never interacted with the two other actresses. And she thinks that it helped her because it, uh, intensify this isolation feeling that Marie had, and she kind of had that feeling too while shooting because she was in a completely different path. Well, now, Kaylin Deaver, had you ever seen her in anything? You know, I've seen her in Booksmart, and I also had seen her in Leggies. Oh, she was in uh, Booksmart? She that was right. her? In, wait, that's her? Yeah, and... she's the one that you compared to... Jodie Comer. Oh, God. You know what? That's how great she is. I had no idea that was, that is incredible. That is an incredible part for her. But the funny um, thing is that she played basically the same character in, in Leggies, an older movie. And, uh, you know, she was funny in both movies, but I was wondering if she was basically that person who really worked for that character, but maybe she just did that brilliantly because that's who she was, but she proved in this in this new show that she can do way different characters. Well, it's funny because I thought I was seeing her for the first time, but she says she's got 27 credits under her umbrella, and some of them are, you know, you're right, Last Man Standing, for example, Booksmart, um, Beautiful Boy, which I saw, and thought was stellar, you know, so she's got, you know, Justified, uh, which is a TV series. So she's, you know, she's got a lot of, you know, odometer miles on. I think she's going to be nominated for an Emmy. I predict 
there are going to be a number of Emmys in this. And I think certainly Tony Collette will be nominated. I think Merritt Weaver will be nominated. And I think Caitlin Deaver will be nominated. What about you? Any predictions? Yeah, no, I think they are all going to be nominated. And I think there will be at least one Emmy among them, probably more than one. Right, right. And then interestingly enough, and you I, know that Merritt Weaver has two Emmys to her name, right? I so did maybe know her that. Third. Yeah. Well, you nurse Nurse Jackie. Yeah. And what's the other one? Nurse Jackie. Both of them, right? Yeah. No. She her first Emmy was for uh, Nurse Jackie, but the second one was for Godless, which I oh. have. Oh. I've seen her in Nurse Jackie, which is a character that it's very similar to what she's doing in Marriage Story, and she's huh. a she has a great comedic time. She's really funny, and yeah. So those are the two the two Emmys that she has. Yeah, yeah. Um, she had twelve nominations, though. I mean, you know, you know. Again, you know, she's been around for a while, and she's done quite a lot of things. So, um, but she's not that. I mean, I had not she's not a household seen her. Nope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nope. So maybe maybe unbelievable would would change that for her. Yeah. This show is really creating a lot of buzz. Well, and then, you know, we, we're we're going to have to wrap here. I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of this show. I think this is an important series. I think it's probably the best series I've seen since The West Wing. I think that, I, you know, what's interesting to me is I, I really think that this is an important series. And I think it is so well written. The only thing I hope, and I'm putting it out there now, and I hope that the director and writers and everybody, you know, listen, you know, Isla Waldman and Susan Grant and, you know, please, Olivia Wilde, please do not do a sequel. You know, it may happen. I know. Can't you just see them saying, oh, this is a great detective team. Let's do a sequel. I'm I'm begging you not to do it. Look, when you've got perfection, do not go back and try to replicate it because I've never made a perfect cake twice. So I'm just going to, you know, maybe we end there. Like, we're, you know, do you agree, right? Like, please don't do that. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. There yeah. is, let's get them to new projects. They're all very talented. I know. There's so much let them do material up. Exactly, exactly. But anyway, I think I think everyone who worked on this, you changed the way we can look at rape, and I think you presented it in this really honest, amazing way. And I don't know that there's any, you know, thing else that was done on it. Now, the last thing I want to end with, the thing that the director said she did is she was really cognizant of the fact that rape scenes in film and in TV are often watched over and over again by rapists, and basically they become rape porn. And she did not want the rape scenes to be rape porn in any way, which is why when you're watching them, it's almost like you're wait, you're like, wait, I didn't really see that. What happened? Or, I, you know, you know, it's cut off, you know, by point of view or whatever. And she did that on purpose so that she wasn't going to be creating, as she calls it, rape porn. I'm going to say it again. And I thought that was brilliant, and I think it should always be done now. Yeah, and I think it it was written the way that they directed, so we can only see the rapids through Marie's eyes, and it, frequently we don't really see. There is a uh, the scene is black for part of the screen because that's her blindfold, and when we see Marie, it's usually very closed angles. We just see some 
parts of her body, so we don't yep. really get the, the full picture. And it's not only that, it's the way that it was edited. So every time she's asked to retell what happened to her, they show a different part of the scene. So well, you'll Yeah, have and it's not just Marie. It's, all, it's everybody who's raped she shows that way. So every you know yeah, they're showing it. yeah it's not just Marie I mean you know you see you're you're experiencing flashbacks from all the people who were raped but it's all done the same way where you don't really see what's actually happening and you know what God bless you I think it's a great way to do it and I think it should become a law or something why should we be creating rape porn for rapists She's absolutely right So yeah, no it's very well done Yeah it's so hard to watch but it's very well done yeah, very hard to watch very hard to watch and very worthwhile watching, and you're going to want to watch it more than once because there's stuff to learn each time you do. But what a great podcast. And for people who haven't watched that yet, it's the first episode that's really, really hard. It gets yeah. easier from the second one. Yeah, that's true, actually. The first one, after I saw the end of the first one, I thought, why do I need to go through this again? But then you start to see the benefit of actually doing it, and it's really wonderful, so it's great. But anyway, I think we can wrap this up. But, Lalu, how great to be on here with you. How really nice. I hope we can do it again and again and again. Yeah, great. It was really great. Okay, so I don't know if any of you realize it or not, but we think it's really worth watching. <laughs> yeah, I think we agree on that one. <laughs> exactly. All right, so we'll see you next week. And don't forget, unbelievable. Tell your friends. 